Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Good morning, church. Yeah, we are beginning a brand new series this morning, and it's on relationships. Would you say that with me? Say relationships. We've entitled this series Risky Commitments, Risky Commitments. And uh, if you don't know anything about our church, one of the things that we do is we as a team gather together and plan uh, strategically sermon series. So this sermon series has been planned since July of uh, 2022. So uh, we're talking, you know, a year and a half plus of us following the direction and where God has. And so there's been a lot of thought process that I have put in personally over the last few weeks of trying to attempt to discern where God would have me minister this month. And uh, I want to begin in just a few moments with asking a question. But if you have a Bible, uh, you can open them with me to a very unique book. It's probably the rowdiest book in the scripture. I would say probably historically out of the 66 books is probably the most difficult to discern theologically. It's the book of Judges, the book of Judges in the Old, Test- Old Testament. That's where we're going to look and, and pray and study today. I do want to encourage you to follow along on the, the uh, Version Bible app if you want to or the digital sermon card available as well. Please keep in prayer as well. Uh, I just did a home visit this morning, um, early this morning to... Uh, to Sean Addy on Town Lake, his mother's passing. She, she should pass any moment. So you can obviously feel the grief that's already entering into the room. And then also uh, Bill Patterson, who attended growth phases and was with our church uh, for several years with Candy. He died uh, early this morning as well in North Carolina. So just keep those families in prayer as we continue to journey throughout this day. But um, I believe God has a clear word for us today. And uh, I know that with great anticipation and excitement, Uh, our hearts can be open to the work of His Spirit. I want to begin with asking you if you've ever heard of a name, the name Glenn Scotty Wolf. If you've never heard that name, you should know it. He holds the Guinness World Record for the most times married in American history. He was married 31 times. The longest marriage was about seven years. The shortest was 19 days. Five of his marriages ended because his spouse died. The rest were divorces, and he loved his record. He was so proud of that record. So he would often, throughout his days, appear on television, and he would give interviews. But it's obvious that there is some relational dysfunction in his life to the point that when he died in 1997, he had 31 wives, he had 19 children, he had 40 grandchildren, and he had 19 great-grandchildren, yet not one single person claimed his body from the coroner. He died completely alone. I give you one guess at his occupation. He was a Baptist pastor. A Baptist minister. Now here's the thing. When we hear things like that, when we listen to such statements, we hear stuff and something internally, here's what we all do. Does Scotty not have a friend? Like someone who would come up to him and say, Hey, Scotty, marriage is just not for you, buddy. Like, you got a lot of great qualities. I really appreciate some things about you, but it's obvious that you're missing some things when it comes to relationships. 
And the reason we think that is because it is so easy, it is so easy for us in America to see the reality of how we can see other people ruin their relationships clearly. It's the fact that none of us can see our own issues in relationships. It's so easy to see other people's dysfunctions. It's so easy to objectively view other people in their marriages and look at other relationships romantically and other relationships in relationship and friendship. But we have so many blind spots that we struggle to see. I know for some of you, you hear a series like Risky Commitments and you're already doubting the relevance of this. And so I've got to spend a few few minutes here in this first Sunday um, just to kind of combat that for a moment. You're here today and you're saying we've been married 40 years. We're stuck with each other. We don't need some of this. You know, some of you are here. You're saying, you know what? I'm single. I'm so single. I was looking at the monastic convents the other day. I was looking for any monks who maybe would just convert. Some of you are here today and you're thinking, you know what? I've been married three times. I can't afford to fall in love again. Like, I get it. I get it, okay? But here's what I want to say. I really do believe these next four weeks is for everybody. Because listen to me, anytime we close off a part of our life to God, we shut off His ability to bless us. And you may be in the room today and you're not interested romantically right now. And you may not be open right now. But I do believe that God wants to do a work in all of our lives. In the work of love. Not just romantic, but also friendship love. And so I really want you to to lean in these next few weeks. We're going to talk about being single. We're going to talk about being married. We're going to talk about communication. We're going to talk about the aspects of this. And I just believe that you're going to get something out of it. I believe with all my heart that if you will be open to it, and lean forward with your ears open to what the Holy Spirit's saying to you, that God will bless your life abundantly. I want to start today with a message that is for everyone that I have called God's specialty. God's specialty. I want to talk to you about the reality of two things today. Heartbreak and grief. Heartbreak and grief. Now, because I'm a child of the 90s, I cannot hear the word heartbreak without thinking about achy, breaky heart. I mean, when I was a kid, Billy Ray Cyrus was the epitome of cool. Acid wash jeans, mullet, those lyrics went around the world. Now listen, if you're born after 2000, I'm talking about Miley's daddy, okay? I'm talking about Miley's daddy. I know you never seen Miley's daddy. This is Miley's daddy. Billy Ray Cyrus. Don't tell my heart, my icky. There we go. Listen, give me a mullet and we're on the road, baby. Right? I'm just saying there's a lot has changed in the last 30 years. You know, Billy Ray's not famous anymore. Mullets have come back. But heartbreak has remained. Remains in every human. There's not a person in this room nor streaming live today that at some point your heart's meant have been completely shattered, broken. Some of you, it's the single season that's been so long it just grinds your heart. For some of you, it's something that someone else did. Maybe it's an unexpected death just shattered you. For some of you, you're in a relationship, your heart's broken because you're discovering for the first time it's very common in America to be married and not actually be in love. So your heart's breaking. And so as we approach this theme, I'm as excited as I am, here's what I do want to say. I'm also not naive that some of you, the moment we say, hey, we're going to talk about marriage, or we're going to talk about love, or we're going to talk about relationships, you just want to hit the door. You'd rather avoid this topic completely. And what I want to say, next slide, is there is a risk to avoidance. There's a risk to avoidance. That whatever broke your heart, if you avoid it, you may heal, but you'll heal the wrong way. 
For example, my friend, John David Sanders, we were growing up, he broke his finger in basketball out on the playground, but his his parents thought it was a sprain in his finger, and the pain was manageable enough, and the swelling eventually went down, so he never had it treated at the ER. Well, years later, he went by, and he went and asked the doctor about it because he had a limited range of motion in his finger. And the, the doctor said, yeah, what's happened is it is indeed actually originally broken, but it's healed over time, but it's healed with a permanent bend now, and so we'd have to re break it to fix it. My concern is that so many people, you made it through your divorce, you made it through your grief, you made it through the premature death, you made it through the breakup, you might still be married even though what happened, but my concern is that your heart has a bend to it, that it's bent. The disposition is a little bit off, and so I want to help you today because I think it's a pervasive issue generationally. There's tons of relational brokenness, As a matter of fact, C.S. Lewis, a prolific writer, dressed it. Here's what he said. He said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, give your heart to no one, not even to an animal, not even to your dog. Wrap it carefully, your heart with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. Lock it up in the casket of your own selfishness, Clive Staples Lewis said. But in that case, casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable. It will become impenetrable. It will become irredeemable. What's he saying? He's echoing the reality that if you've ever experienced heartbreak, you've got two choices. You give up on love or you go to God and let it be healed properly. Now, listen, I realize for you, you may not have chosen to have a broken heart, but it is your choice to heal from it. And that means you're going to have to open up to this idea that means God wants to do this a work in this part of my life because you're not going to find wholeness from God, next slide, with only partial surrender. Meaning what that means is it takes complete surrender to him to be completely whole in him. So what that means is you're going to have to show up and stop rationalizing the pain of your past. You're going to have to stop denying that you are broken. You're going to have to stop denying that the heart was not bothered. Some of you have to stop medicating it. And you got to say, God, my heart is not in a place that it should be. It's not put together well. And I'm going to start trusting you with it. And when you do that, what you're going to find is you will find that God specializes in broken hearts. That's his specialty. Look what Psalm 147 says. He heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. Leave that up there a moment. That's a picture of if you broke your arm, a physician would put a cast on it. Well, this binding is a a picture of God wrapping your heart in a sort of cast called his grace. That when he, we show up and up to him and we surrender to him, he wraps grace around our broken heart and he surrounds our broken heart and he supports it and he protects it and he gives us the time we need to heal properly. He'll push aside the attacks on my heart in the brokenheartedness in order to create a space for that heart to heal. So we got to show up and we got to say, God, this hurts, but I need you to heal it. And when he does, and we do, he works in us in ways we don't even think are possible anymore. He begins to make us tender again. Listen, I'm here to tell you this first Sunday of February, he can put sizzle back into dead marriage if you'll let him do him. He can do you better than eHarmony. He can do better than finding the right person created for you, even on an app. But all of our hearts can love again because God is the one who can heal them properly. So I want to explore this with you. And today we're going to do it out of a really interesting character in Scripture that I have never taught from in eight years from this church. 
I've never taught from. One of the things I love about Scripture is most of the lessons you learn aren't from the strengths, but for, from the weaknesses. And I think this is clearly seen in a man named Samson. A man named Samson. Now, Samson is known scripturally for being physically strong, but boy, is he relationally weak. And you find his story in the book of Judges. Now, the book of Judges, if you don't know, is a history book that is of the nation of Israel, and it kind of records this historical pattern for them where they would follow God and then fall away and then follow God and then fall away. They struggled with God's faithfulness, and every time that nation fell away from God, they were overcome by a foreign nation, usually called the Philistines. So in order to bring them back to God, he would raise up unlikely heroes to lead them back to himself. One of the most unlikely heroes is Samson. Now, I want you to understand something. Anytime God calls us into a special purpose, he gives us gifts to walk it out. So from the moment Samson's born, his parents know he's called and he's gifted. So this is what the angel tells his father. He's going to be set apart to me and I want you to show people that he's called. So there's three specific things Samson can never do. He can never drink alcohol, one. He can never touch dead things, two. And catch this, he can never cut his hair. Three things, you need to follow these. It's because these are symbols that show he's mine. These are symbols that show he's called. Nothing intrinsically salvific about not cutting one's hair or touching dead things or not drinking alcohol. Well, listen, in the New Testament, you're called. And because you're called, you are also gifted. Some of you are great leaders. Some of you are great teachers. Some of you are great hospitable individuals. Samson's gift is that he was supernaturally strong. You can read the feats of his strength and they're jaw dropping. But what's interesting is that as physically strong as he was, the strongest pull in his life came from the dysfunctions in his relationships. His dysfunctions relationally often pulled him outside of God's will and into a miserable place. Samson is a picture of what it looks like to have your heart broken, not heal properly, heal with a bend, and suffer consequences for the rest of your life. Today, I want to give you three types of heartbreak that he endures. And I want to bring them to you today because of the exact same types of heartbreak you and I endure. I want to show you today there's hope even though your heart may be broken. Here's the first one. Love is possible even if you're lonely. Love is possible even if you're lonely. We start in chapter 14 of Judges. I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, when Samson went to Timnah, he saw a young Philistine woman. This is amazing. He went home and he told his father, Mother, I've seen a Philistine woman at Timnah. Now get her for me so that I can marry her. Now his father and mother asked him, Are there any nice girls out there, Samson? I mean, women among our nation, our relatives, our people. Do you have to marry a woman who's, catch this word, from a godless people? Remember, they are godless. This is not just like, oh, we don't like her, Samson. They're saying, Samson, you're stepping into an altogether different way of life than why you were born. You're going against the very grain of the call of God on your life. But Samson told her, listen to me, listen to me, young people, listen to me, listen to me. Get her for me because she's the one I want. Get her for me. She's the one I want, I desire. He's been called to deliver God's people from the Philistines, not marry them. Listen to me. What would cause someone to take intentional steps away from God's calling? What would cause someone to say, yeah, I know that's not for me, but I'm going to do it anyways? One reason loneliness and it destroys and has destroyed more men and women than probably anything else in our culture 
Loneliness calls you to walk exactly diabolically opposed to the call of God on your life. Samson is so tired of going to wedding after wedding. He's tired of seeing people post about their Valentine's Day. He's tired of being a bridesmaid and never a bride. And it is, and it is so grinded to him where he's saying, I'll do anything to get rid of this loneliness. Mother Teresa, beautiful. She said, loneliness is the leprosy of the modern day. Loneliness is the leper's colonies. What is she saying? She knew that God didn't create us to live in isolation. It's not good for us. It's a dangerous place because you're, when you're in isolation, the eyes of the enemy can convince you that God's not good and God doesn't have a plan for your life. When you're in isolation, especially the, every year that passes by, you start to lower your standards. You start to compromise your character. You start to look to places that cannot fill you to satisfy the longing in you. And this is what we see with Samson. He's just gotten to the place where he says, you know what? She's the only thing that can fill me and fulfill me. I know it's not right. I know God's not called me to it, but I'm so desperate. And he's looking for her to cure this loneliness in him. And listen, here's what I wish someone would have told him. You ready? You ready? Next slide. Loneliness is a condition of the soul, not a relationship status. Loneliness actually has nothing to do with the relationship. It has everything to do with a person's heart. What's going on in their soul? And you know it's true because you got hundreds of Facebook friends, but you can still feel lonely. You can have a thousand people follow you on Instagram and still feel lonely. See, loneliness is deeper. It's not something you can fix by getting more friends. You don't fix loneliness by going on dates. You can't fix loneliness by getting a spouse. Loneliness is a deeper work, so it requires a deeper response. If you're here today and you're lonely, I'm going to tell you how to fix it. I'm going to tell you how to fix it real quick. You ready? Number one, you're going to ha- well, first thing you're going to have to do is you're going to have to get a deeper relationship with God. That's number one. If you're lonely, you're going to have to, first of all, throw the roots down deep in relationship with God. Why? Because soul issues can only be fixed by the one who created the soul, not a person. Listen, your spouse may be amazing, your friends may be the best, but they have a limited capacity to love you, and they quite honestly do a bad job compared to God's love for you. They don't have that capacity to love you that way. Listen, God has no limitations on His ability to love you. Hebrews 13.5 says, With God we can be satisfied with what we have, for He Himself is His God making us a promise, saying, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I don't know if anybody's ever told you this before, but leave you refers to physical proximity. Forsake you refers to emotional proximity. God is the one who says, I don't do either. I don't physically leave you. And I don't emotionally abandon you. Woo, that's good news this morning on the first Sunday of February 2024. He'll never leave you physically. He'll never abandon you emotionally. That's God's proximity. So so think of it this way. Meredith and I can be physically together, but because of conflict, we can be emotionally apart. We can be a couple feet from each other in the bed. Come on, have you ever sat with someone and they're there, but their hearts are turned somewhere else? Here's what God's saying. He's saying, no matter where you go, I'm going to be with you. And no matter what you do, I'll never turn my heart from you. There is nothing that will ever limit my ability to reach into your heart and show you that I love you. And from that, you're going to find satisfaction. And that satisfaction comes from knowing that I'm loved by God no matter what I've done, no matter who I've become, no matter how far I've strayed. There's nowhere I can go that he has not gone and he will not come and find me there. Here's the second one. If you want to get rid of loneliness, you should deepen your relationship with other godly people. You got to deepen it. One of the things I notice about people who are desperate for romance in their life is that that's all they care about. It's like they let all of the other friendships and relationships fall to the side. They're so focused on the need for a spouse, they actually miss out on the value of friendship. 
Now, why is that important? Let me tell you why. Because love is born out of friendship. We don't start out love. We start out as friends. Love only comes after friendship, after relationship. So it, it, what that means is if I learn to be a great friend, I'm also learned to be great at love, which is why you need community. You need a godly community, which is why we as a church offer connect groups. Connect groups are the place for you to come in and train to be a great spouse and a great employer and a great parent. They grow you in places that you normally are not ready to fully exercise in. This is the point of connect groups. Listen to me. Godly community teaches us the dance of the porcupine. Oh, come on. If I, if I dig so deep that I call out the dance of the porcupine, you ought to lean forward right now. How does godly community teach you the dance of the porcupine? Let me tell you, the North American rodent called the porcupine lives most of its life in isolation, and it's because it's covered with 30,000 sharp quills. Ain't nobody wants to be a friend with somebody that prickly in nature. Every fall, though, the porcupine starts a cycle that begins in the porcupine community where we don't want to be alone anymore. We want to come together to keep these species going. And so Marvin Gaye kicks up on the countryside, and the porcupines about September, they come together, and normally when they approach one another, they swing their 30,000 quills at each other. But every September, they show up, oh, watch this, watch this, and greet each other paw to paw, P-A-W. You don't believe me? I'll show you a quick video. Marvin Gaye must be playing, because look at him. He's ready to go, baby. This is called the dance of the porcupine. You can stop it right there. Why do you show this? Every one of us is a porcupine. We all got sharp places in our lives. They have different names. One, some of your quills are called arrogance. Some of them are pride. Some of them are selfishness. Some of them are envy. Some of us are insecurity. And the moment we feel threatened in a relationship, we'll swing those quills at anybody. But a connect group is a place where you show up and you look at your leaders and everybody else around you and say, I got some quills, so I'm here to show up Paul to Paul, baby. This is what we're doing. We want the porcupine dance and our connect groups. It's where I'm learning to come into a relationship, not in a defensive posture, but I'm open to the fact that I got some places in me that are sharp and I learn to give grace to other people for their sharp places. That's why connect groups are our training grounds. And with it, I'm telling you, friends, I'm telling you that the sky's the limit on what God can do in making you a tremendous place, a, a tremendous spouse, a tremendous employer in that kind of space. But if you don't have that kind of space where you're really known for who you are, I'm just going to tell you, you're going to live prickly and die prickly. You must have godly community. It's a training ground. Here's the second one. Love is possible even if you face betrayal. Second thing that we learn from Sam and Samson is love is possible even when I face betrayal. So even after his parents warning him not to marry this girl, you know what Samson does? He marries her. Why did he marry her? Well, because he's in love with her. Listen to me. Just because it was wrong and the wrong person doesn't mean your feelings aren't true. So listen to me. Our hearts are made to attach to each other. That's what our hearts are made. And that's the reason you and I have to be very careful about who we attach our hearts to. Because sometimes the feelings get real on people that are wrong. So he marries her, but guess what? 
When you marry someone, you don't just marry them. Listen up to me, young people. You get to marry everything that comes with them. You get all their customs. You get how they look at the world, and you won't change how they look at the world. You get their faith. You get their friends. You get their family. And all of that comes with the marriage. Now, here's what's the problem, right? Is all of this starts to create problems for Samson. Because he's got issues now because his wife's customs aren't his customs. So the Bible tells us in Judges 14, her friends start to try to manipulate their relationship. And her family tries to get her to get the secret from him of his strength. Because listen, it don't matter. He's my son-in-law. He's the one that keeps overthrowing our Philistines. So the tension continues to grow to where Samson, he's a fighter. He says, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. He puts on his boxing gloves. And the Bible says he goes and he leaves his home and he begins to fight her tribe. But when he comes home, he discovers he's lost the fight. Because look what happens in Judges 14, verse 20. So his wife was given in marriage to the man who had been Samson's best man at the wedding. Listen to me. Some of you know exactly what he felt like when he came home. You know what it's like to face the betrayal of an adultery. Some of you know what it's like to find text messages, DMs, secondary profiles on Instagram. That's pain. That's pain. Some of you, you maybe not face betrayal that way. You're still together with the person, but there's so many unkept promises. You live in betrayal. Now, here's the problem with betrayal. Betrayal opens the door to the most destructive emotion known to the human repertoire. Bitterness. Bitterness. Can I define bitterness with you? Next slide. Bitterness is anger with endurance. Anger that doesn't stop. Anger that persists. It's not just eruption in a flash. It's anger that can go for the long haul. It's anger that'll stay with it. Now, here's what I've learned. Bitter people have this unique thing where life gets really simple. When you're bitter, you don't care about anything else. All you want to talk about is what you're bitter about. All you want to focus on is what you're bitter about. You only want to think about what you're bitter about. Life gets so simple for bitter people. And all you can focus on is they hurt me, and I'm looking for an opportunity to hurt them. It's like the woman who was bitten by a mad dog. She went to the doctor, and the doctor said, the prognosis isn't good, ma'am. said, you got rabies. I'm not sure you're going to make it. She said, well, can you give me a piece of paper and a pen? And he said, yeah, I'll give you a piece of paper and a pen. He said, I'm sure you want to write out your will. And she said, will? I want to write out the names of the people I want to bite. All she's focused on is who she can bite because she's been bitten. Listen to me, Samson, all he can focus on is who he wants to bite because he's been bitten. So the Bible says since his best man took his wife, he gets 300 foxes. I've been to this field in in Israel. Fabulous, beautiful area. He gets 300 foxes and he lights their tails on fire. And he releases them in the community to set the whole Philistine community ablaze. So all the Philistine fields, all the Philistine structures, all the Philistine homes go up in smoke. And I'm sure Samson is standing there with the glow on his face, thinking, I got him. Woo! I really showed him. And so the Bible says two days later, they discovered who lit their community on fire. They took his wife, they took her family and the whole farm and put them in a house and locked the door and lit it on fire. Proving to us that bitterness never just burns one way. It burns everything and everyone involved. Kills everything. 
Now, I've taught on unforgiveness in Dwelling Place Church as much as I have taught on any other subject over the years because that's how needed it is. And you could go to our website, go to our podcast, and you can find messages on how to forgive. But I got to thinking this week, I don't need to give you a how-to of how to forgive. I realize forgiving someone in how-to is actually the second part of the process. The first part of the process is the fact that you would even be open to wanting to forgive them. That's what I want to address. I mean, what good is a how-to if you don't have a want-to? So today I'm not going to give you how to forgive because many of you are going, I can't forgive them. There's no way. If you knew what they did, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to give you how to forgive them. I want to give you the steps to even open in your heart to the idea that God may want you to forgive them. Here's the first thing you've got to do. Number one, if you're in bitterness, you have to detox in God's presence. Now, folks, I'm going to be so practical, so practical for you. Okay, and unforgiveness and bitterness. The atmosphere that you were in just a few moments ago when God's presence is here to do to worship, that's the kind of atmosphere that if you're toxic, you have to recreate in your home and you've got to be in each week because listen to me, anger is intoxicating. Anger intoxicates you, meaning it causes you to see things wrongly, just like you're intoxicated. You don't see yourself right. You don't see situations correctly. You're in need of detoxification. You need to get in God's presence to detox. God's presence, more than anything else, sobers you up to what's really taking place. It sobers you to give you a real right sound mind to actually not see through the emotion, but to see through the principles of God's word. Here's the second thing you need to do if you're in toxicity of bitterness. You need to trace the tragedy. You need to trace the tragedy. What are you saying? Bitterness is very unusual because resentment says this person, that moment, Bitterness is not like that. It just becomes this cloud of fog that you can't exactly put your finger on what happened. It just collects. So it takes a little bit of bitterness from here and a little bit of bitterness from there and bitterness from there and it pulls it all together until it's a big entanglement. And the truth is, if you want to forgive, if you did want to forgive, you can't just find one thing. That's the reason, y'all, people blow up equally when they can't get a barking spot as when they get a divorce because it's all tied up emotionally. And we think, why in the world is they so mad at Target? They're so mad because it's entangled with every other bit of bitterness in their life. All the other pain in their life. It's all one unit. It's one person. So what do you have to do? you got to get in God's presence to detoxify and to get a sober mind. And you have to start tracing it back. Because how do you forgive what you can't even name? How do you forgive what you can't really Put your finger to. You start going through it and oh this and it was that and this person did that and that moment and, and, and all this cloudiness comes in your mind. The thing is, I got to identify what really broke my heart. And then finally, thirdly, if you want to detoxify, I want to tell you, you need to weigh your feelings against your future. Weigh your feelings against your future. I believe this all my heart, folks. Had Samson known that his retaliation would have cost him his wife's life, he wouldn't have done it but his feelings were driving the boat. Here's what 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says. It says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, it says, Instead of repay evil with a blessing. Notice that. Repay evil with a blessing. Why would I do that? Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. So let me say it this way. Was it right what they did to you? Absolutely not. Did you deserve it? No way on God's creation did you deserve it. Did it hurt? Oh my gosh, did it hurt. Is it reasonable for you to want to retaliate in your words and actions? 100%. But before you do, just consider 
God still has a blessing for your life and you might surrender it if you retaliate. Don't repay evil with evil. Why? You were called to inherit a blessing. Folks, I have seen this kind of crazy teaching going around modern-day evangelicals. Jesus said, someone slaps you on the cheek, turns to him the other cheek, and I've heard it, this, I guess you would call it a masochistic understanding of if someone slaps you on the cheek, you're to turn it and let them smack or beat the other cheek. Hogwash. Hogwash. You look at every early church father interpretation, that's not what Jesus is saying at all. What's he saying? He's saying when you get smacked in the cheek, this is teeming with anger and hatred and blood from the blow. He says, turn that away from them and simply overcome the bitterness with a disposition inside of peace where you pray for their own soul. Why? Because he called you to this. What does that mean? I could inherit a blessing. In burning them down, you may burn your own house down. In setting them ablaze, you may blaze your own life. So you got to weigh out your feelings against your future because bitterness burns in all directions. Here's the third one. Love is possible even if you've endured loss. This is the third thing we learned from Samson. Love is possible even if you've endured loss. Samson shows up to an empty house for the first time. He's lost his wife. He's lost his family. Man, loss is so brutal, isn't it? Come on, can we just admit that as humans this morning? Loss is brutal. It is brutal. Because it takes what was just there the day before. And in a moment, it's never the same. You never get to see that face again, this side of eternity. Never get to interact with them. Never get to talk with them. It's brutal. It's here one moment, gone the next. It never gives you the opportunity to process it. Loss doesn't. Never gives you the ability to prepare with it. It's just, here, deal with it. Now, I want to tell you, there are two types of loss when it comes to these type of relationships, and I want to spend adequate time on both. The first one is either you lose people by choice or you lose people by death. I want to talk about choice first, then I want to talk about death second. If you've lost someone by choice, your choice, their choice, somebody else's choice, that can begin some of the darkest days in your life. See, no one starts to date or no one gets married with the idea of, hey, this will end one day. No, no, no. We go in full hearts, open, give gifts, exchange flatterings, dream together, have experiences together, make memories together, and then one day it's just gone. You're back to square one. And I'm not sure where all of that goes in my life. How do I process that? But if you're maybe in this room going through that season, I just got a couple of tips that might encourage you. Here's the first one. Don't jump back into another relationship too quickly. Don't do that. Don't rebound into another relationship. What do you mean, Craig? Listen, affection is made by God to be addictive. It draws us. That's what affection is. And what happens is sometimes we just quickly go to the next person, quickly to the next hookup, because we cannot live with just the idea of being alone or being no longer affectionately loved. And all I'm saying is that you're doing self-harm when you do that because you're going to go on some dates and you're going to have some hookups and you're going to see some times where you look across 
And it's going to make sense to you. And you're probably not going to have enough confidence to say it. But you'll find them. They'll be in a day. And you'll look at their face. And you'll be like, oh my God, this person is not good for me. This person is not helpful to what God's called me to. But you know why I like him? Because I needed a fix. And I'm not actually with the person I need to be with. And it will happen to you. It will happen. What? Here's the second thing. Take some time to learn when you lose somebody by choice. What do you mean, Craig? Most of the time we approach leaving a relationship with every bit of it as I'm going to move forward and not be reflective. And and pastors will tell you this stuff. They'll tell you this kind of stuff. Forget the things behind and just move forward. Wrongly misinterpreting Philippians passage. Okay? But don't, don't, don't take time to reflect. We, we rarely pause, no matter whose fault it is, to go, man, how can I get better? Man, I, can I get better in my communication? Can I get better in my affection? Can I get better in the way I handle conflict? Can I get better in something in my character can grow? I mean, rarely do we do that. We're so bent on going forward, so bent on denying, so bent on showing that other person we can go on without them. We can't show a weakness right now. We can move on that we, we never stop to reflect. Here's the last one. you got to understand when you lost a relationship by choice, God isn't focused on our missteps. He is focused on our next step. God isn't focused on our missteps. He's focused on our next step. You need this one. Samson's losses were so heavy that he started living opposite of what God called him to be. His disobedience opened the door for the Philistines to finally overcome him. They found out his secret was his hair. And now it wasn't his hair that made him strong. It's the commitment to God that made him strong. But they came in and cut his commitment to God and they cut his hair. And once they did, his strength was gone. And here's the way it ends up. God's so sad, folks. So sad. Judges chapter 16, verse 21. Look at, look at Samson's life, verse 21. So the Philistines captured him and gouged out his eyes. They took him to Gaza where he was bound with bronze chains and they forced him to grind grain in the prison. Here's God's deliverer now in chains to the Philistines. And man, when I read this, something leaped off the page in my heart because this is so many of you. You come in this Sunday and you've been through loss and you've been through betrayal and you've been through difficulty and honestly, it's caused you where your eyes are gouged out to not see love anymore. You can't see a future with love anymore. You can't consider that I'm not that type of person and you've started now to put it on you like it was my fault and I'm the one that did it and maybe I'm not just built for love and other people at Dwelling Place are built for love and but I'm not and you've just pressed yourself down like Samson beating himself and you're blind to the idea that God can still work in your life and you can't see and you've started to self-hate because of it and so I want to say to you if that's you today I just want to say to you from the outset first and foremost when you come into rooms like this and in churches like this we have a tendency to look around and just go man everybody here's perfect their marriage is perfect their dates are perfect and I'm just the only one messed up can I just announce to you this morning the only perfect person that has ever come in this building is named Jesus Christ of Nazareth he's the only one Every one of us has messed up. We've all messed up. We've all got relational tension. We all got issues in our relationships. Here's the question. How are we going to respond to those missteps? And focusing on the next step. September 2019, the nation was met with the news that a young pastor in California named Jared Wilson had unexpectedly taken his own life. Cause everybody to kind of go, what in the world has happened? This family, can I show you a picture? He and Julie and his two precious kids. He's a part of an influential ministry. He's an author of social media. 
He's speaking at all the biggest stages. He was 30 years of age. He took his life. It messed me up because I was in a tough season. I just talked to him the week before. Talked to him about medication. Talked to him about his own experience of a life of depression for him. Started in his early adolescent years. And because his life was public, his now wife's grief journey had to take on the public. How would you like that? The pain of that reality. She took people on a journey, and it's amazing what she's done. She has shared her story through social media. It has helped so many people destigmatize mental health conversations. She started a nonprofit that helps people feel like they have somewhere to go, have nowhere to go, that are struggling with depression and anxiety. She's created a place for them to go. But before she could start redeeming this awful, awful tragedy, she said to the media, I had two choices, only two. She said, in the wake of what happened, I could blame God, retreat, and give up, or I could thank God, lean in, and show up. That's it. I had no other choices. Two choices. Blame God, retreat, and give up, or thank God, lean in, and just keep showing up. And she said this. Can I read it for you? She said, I chose the second option, not because it's easier or natural, but because God is so real and His words are true. He really does give peace that passes understanding. He's so near to the brokenhearted. He has plans for us that are good even when the road to get there is messy and hurts to the core. There's no darkness His light can't pierce through. There's not a single thing that catches God off guard. Let that sink in. He sees all things beginning to end. Listen, I know sitting here today, listening, maybe you can't see yourself loving again, but that don't mean God can't see it. You can't see your, your heart being open to a spouse again, but that doesn't mean God can't see it. You couldn't conceive the idea of opening up to another person again, but God can still see that in spite of your loneliness and the losses and the betrayals and the difficulties, there's still a work of God in your life, and God can do something miraculous. And for no other reason than the most powerful verse in Samson's story is this. Look at it. Look at it. It says, The Philistines captured him gouged his eyes out. They took him to Gaza where he was bound with bronze chains and forced him to grind grain in the prison. But before long, his hair began to grow back. Woo! Before long, what was his original commitment began to grow back again. I can't tell you how many people sat on my couch over the last 20 years, who looks like it is the end of the road. There's no way you can disclose the sexual intercourse you had with a family dentist in front of my spouse and go through the details of adultery and have to have my spouse hear detail after detail. We looked at people who there's no way you can move forward with the sense of loss and betrayal. That is, And all I'm saying is you may have a broken heart this morning, but I'm going to tell you, God is still working. Betrayal and loss may be part of your story, but they're not your whole story. That in time, his hair began to grow back again. And if you will just offer up a little bit of the faith you have to God, I'm telling you, you will be absolutely shocked at how much a work he can do in your heart to cause you to love again, to trust again, to engage again, because there is no heartbreak he cannot heal, but we have to choose to be healed. Now, if you're here and you lost someone by death, let me, let me finalize today by talking about grief. Point you back to a message that Pastor Chad did last week about Job. Just a catty corner or 
piggyback for a moment. Before I do, I want to read you two verses of our Lord of how acquainted He is with grief because I want you to know that He feels your grief. He understands grief. Matthew chapter 26, verse 37 says, talking of Jesus, He's in the garden. It says He became anguished and distressed and He told Him, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of even death. And Jesus in His garden season, He's struggling with grief. He's experiencing grief and He's experiencing it this, this wasn't, by the way, the only time he experienced grief because one of the last times we read Isaiah 53.3, it says he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief. Y'all, honestly, when it comes to the topic of grief, struggle, loss, it's not a topic we really like to talk about, is it? But it's a topic we have to address because we all experience in our lives. But we just don't know what to do with it. As Pastor Chad told us last week, Job lost everything. Literally lost everything. Goes through a grieving process. I mean, loses his cattle, loses everything, loses his family, all of his sheep, all of his shepherds, all collapsed. You get to chapter 2, he gets boils all over his skin. It's super painful. Then his wife tells him to curse God and die. And, and Job is in a place where his transportation, his relationships. I mean, you would talk about a disorienting part, all he's lost. He lost it all. We're about to come up on three years. February 16th, actually, our married night is when will be the three-year mark that Meredith lost her father, stalwart, leader in the family, Dewey Robertson. Three years. It's amazing how quickly time passes. And I never forget in that long journey, I mean, you're all over the place emotionally because you're listening to doctors and you're listening to blood stats and you're listening to is enough oxygen in his blood sats for the day? Is it not? And you can't go visit and he's ventilated and you're trying to hold on to everything and we're driving down Canton Street and we see a sign on a church and we want to turn around and go take a picture of the sign because it's God trying to communicate to us. And I mean, you are just, you, it just, it's, it's, it's miserable. It's miserable. Hanging in the balance. Before grief actually really sinks her fangs. Right? Of course, after two weeks, he did get to a place where he wasn't testing positive for COVID anymore, and so family began to be able to spend time with him. And then came the, the death, and I was there at his death, as was his wife, of course, next to him, and COVID had just ravaged his body, took him so quickly when he came off the ventilator. And it was in during that season, situation both personally for my wife and then walking with people through grief, I noticed a few things. The, the first thing I've noticed is that you and I have a spiritual enemy. And I don't know if you know that or not. But when things get hard, it's not like the enemy goes, oh man, it looks like you've had a rough day, I'm going to give you a break. He comes after perceptions very hard in grief. He is relentless. And when he sees a wounded individual, he pounces. Oh, I see that tear, I'll leave you alone. No, he actually amps up and the attacks get worse. And in the middle of your tragedy, your hardship, your difficulty, the enemy comes at you with three lies. I want to tell you three lies of grief. And I want to disarm them this morning. The first lie, these lies are brutal, but they're all lies. And the first lies you're hit with is, I must have done something wrong to cause this grief or cause this loss. It's the first thing that hits. And what in the world is wrong with me? I've done something. How in the world did, how did I contribute to this? I must have, Job's friends thought this. 
His friends come to him, chapter 8, verse 4. Your children sinned against God. That's why it's happening to you, Job. Imagine hearing that. Job eleven six. God's punishing you, they said. This is why it's happening to you. When you and I face loss and tragedy, it doesn't mean you did anything wrong. To face heartache, to face grief doesn't mean you're broken, so to speak. It doesn't mean you're bad. It doesn't mean God gets mad at you. What it means is you're human. It means you're a human being. And we have this tendency to think that when life is good, God loves me. And when life is hard, God's mad at me. And we have this tendency to believe that God's love for us is predicated on our temporal happiness. But let me tell you, God's love for you is proven on a cross. Here's the second lie the enemy hits us with in grief. If I had enough faith, I would have avoided this. That one hits real quickly. Well, if I'd have just exercised more faith, there's no way this would have happened. No way I would be experiencing this type of loss and grief. Well, listen to me. If that's true, then Jesus would have never experienced loss because he's perfect, he's sinless, he's full of faith. His close friend and ministry partner, John the Baptist, was tragically beheaded. And we see Jesus' father, Joseph, on the scene when he's 12, and we never see him again. And when Jesus is on the cross, he looks at John and says, take care of my mother. Why in the world is he telling John the Beloved to take care of his mother? Because there's no husband to take care of her. Somewhere between 12 and 30, Joseph, his dad, passed away. And if there were some relationships that Jesus would have fixed from tragedy, I think he would have put his hands on his dad and resurrected him from the dead, but he didn't. He faced the death of his dad and kept moving forward. You'll say, well, I wish you had more faith. We're talking about the Son of God. And what I have found is that all of us in that moment, we want a formula to faith that never allows us to experience pain. The problem is there's no such formula. The formula doesn't exist. We think if I have enough faith, I can fix it. I can never be sick. I can never, I can fix every problem. We think if I get enough people pray, and surely God has a quota. We just got to get to 1,000 voices. And if I can just get to 1,000 voices, he won't listen to 999. But if I can get to, and you, and you think this, I know it's funny, we laugh now, but get in the midst of tragedy and see what happens. I get, I'm going to get 1,001. 1,000 is not enough to get God's attention, but 1,001 will. And we start moving, trying to insulate. The problem is it's not true. There's no formula to always get what we want from God. See, sometimes faith opens a door to a miracle, and we believe in that, and we thank God for that. He's a miracle-working God, but sometimes faith opens the door for the miracle. Sometimes, though, faith gets you back up again when you don't want to get back up again. Sometimes faith gets you to stand up when you experience heartache. Makes you move forward when you don't want to move forward. And both are faith, and both are amazing. And both need to be congratulated. Here's the third lie. The longer you go through a process of grief, lost tragedy, the enemy hits you with this last one. If I really trusted God, I'd be over this by now. I wouldn't be feeling all these weird grief feelings. If I really trusted Him. Can I tell you, experiencing grief and trusting God are not mutually exclusive. They're not oxymoronous. You can fully trust God and fully experience grief and loss. And I would say it's not because you did something wrong. It's not because you have no faith. You're not experiencing that. It's not a lack of faith that calls you to experience. It's not a lack of trust that calls you to experience. I would say you actually have a ton of faith. You have a ton of trust. And that's why you're here today. And you're in church this morning. You're continuing to try to move forward. It's not a trust problem. You've got plenty of trust. It's not a faith problem. You have plenty of faith. That's why you're here. It's why you're moving forward. It really is true. In Isaiah 61, it says, He comforts those who mourn. 
It's in that that he really does give us beauty for ashes. He really is at work in the middle of our heartache and pain, and he's producing beauty. And sometimes it's not as clear or quick or as polished as we want it to, but it's still true that God is working in our pain. He's redeeming it. He's working through it. He's making a way where there seems to be no way. And I just want to tell you real quick, I want to end this way. Four things that I just want to give you today that help, I think, my wife and I and particularly her walk through this grief process. Here's the first one. Number one, grief is a process, and you must realize you're in a process. Listen to me. Grief is not a problem to solve, but a process to navigate. It's not meant to be solved. It's meant to be journeyed through. You don't don't get over grief, you walk through grief. You can grieve well, but you're not going to grieve quick. It's a process. I've heard all my ministry, five stages to grief. I've heard them all my ministry. Pastoral counseling, class after class. So I can know what it is I'm experiencing, and it's a process. So I want to list just a couple of the stages of grief to help you identify where you're at. All the emotions, Pastor Craig, are stirred up. Here's the first one, it's shock. Shock is the first stage of grief. You're just shocked. The news happens. The text gets sent. The phone call gets made. You let go from your job. You were just shocked. You're stunned. You can't believe it happened. You're numb. A lot of times you just isolate. Second stage of grief, sorrow. You're just sad. You lose a child, miscarriage, broken relationship, parent pass away. You're just sad. People try to ask you how you're feeling. You don't know how to say anything. I'm just sad that this happened. I'm sad that... They're not there. I'm sad that this is my reality. Here's a third thing, third stage, you struggle. Shock, sad, struggle. What do you mean struggle? It's just a struggle. You try to process, you try to grieve. It's in this part of the grief game, we ask the question, why? And this is the third stage of grief where now, here's the phrase that comes out. What if I had? What if he had? What if he didn't? What if he didn't get COVID? What if he had not been hurt? What? That's the what if stage. That's the struggle stage of grief. What if? What if we would have done this? We stay here because we struggle with the idea that if it's no longer painful, then what I lost no longer matters. So most people stop here. Because if they lose the pain, they lose the memory. So they camp out there. Hang on there. And we hold on to the pain because we think that's all we've got left. Here's the next stage. Surrender. But all this is, this is where you just surrender your pain, you surrender your heartache, you surrender to the Lord, and you say, God, you can have it. And then guess what you do? You take it back the next day. And then you surrender the next week, and guess what you do the next week? You take it back. And then you surrender it one Sunday, and guess what you do by Sunday evening? You take it back. And here's the last stage. I've combined these last two. Sanctification and service. What? What it means is that through your heartache, your pain, God is sanctifying you. Boy, He grows you in pain. He really grows you. Can I tell you, I wish Meredith's dad's story would have been different? Yeah. Can I tell you, my 2000, our 2017, 18, and 19, I wish that would have been a different three years? Absolutely. But boy, I'm going to tell you, God has given me so much compassion and care for people. So much empathy for people. So much empathy. I'm just like a big teddy bear where I'll hug everybody. 
And God's working. And what is He doing through that pain? Boy, He is sanctifying your heart. And there are few things that grow you more than pain. And we wish it was different. I wish it was different. But God then uses my, my sanctified pain to serve other people. That's how we know grief has had its work. It's a process. You're in a grief process. And I wish it was linear, y'all. I wish I could tell you those steps and it was linear, but you might be in step three and you might be in one tomorrow. You might be in stage four next week and back to two the week after. It is not linear, but it, boy, it moves. Here's the second thing. You got to choose worship. You got to choose worship. Come on, Kobe. Do we have step two? There we go. Excellent. There we go. Choose worship. You have to know you're in a process. Job chapter 1, verse 20 says, Job stood up after those four people came to him, relayed tragedy to him. He stares, stands up, tears his robe, falls down, and he worships. Everybody say, choose worship. You might want to run from God, but you can't run from God. I'm going to tell you how helpful it is just to run to God. So many times over the months since heartache, you ask God. You ask God for help. God, you got to give me strength. God, you got to give me wisdom. Lord, I just want to worship you. I'm just going to keep my heart full of worship. Just lift up your hands in the midst of the grief and say, God, I worship you. I don't understand all of it, but I praise you. I don't understand what I'm going through, but God, I worship you. And then guess what happens? The comfort of the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus just comes in that moment and it's so beautiful and it's so helpful and it's so healing to our broken souls when we're hurting. Here's the third thing you got to do in grief. you got to keep an eternal perspective. Job 19, it says, But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and He will stand upon the earth at last and I will see Him for myself. Yes, I'll see Him with my own eyes. And Job said, I'm overwhelmed at that thought. You see, earth, it's not heaven here on earth. There's loss, there's pain, there's heartache. But one day, he said, I'll see all that change. Listen, friends, Revelation 21 and 3 says this. I heard a loud shout. Everybody say a loud shout. From the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. <laughs> I'm going to shout that through this 2024 political season. That God's home is coming a day when it's among his people. Not wicked governments. Not even a democracy where people have a choice. A theocracy where God rules and reigns with justice. Verse 4 says he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. Everybody say no more death. No more sorrow. Say no more sorrow. No more crying. Come on, say no more crying. No more pain. Say no more pain. All four of those things are gone forever. And Jesus says, see, I'm making everything new. Hey, there's loss, there's pain, but I look forward to that day with him where he wipes the tears from my eyes, he wipes the sorrow from my heart, he takes the grief, he takes the pain, and he makes everything brand new. Earth is not my home. Heaven is prepared for you and I, and that's where we experience the healing that our Soul desires. And finally and fourthly, God will redeem your pain. Doesn't mean it's no longer painful. What it does mean, though, is your pain now has a purpose. And He's using the pain to serve other people, to show mercy to people, to help other people. I wouldn't wish that on anyone, my own experience on anyone, but I will tell you, I'm so grateful that I can help someone else. Psalm 56 and 8 says, 
You keep track of all of my sorrows. You've collected my tears in a bottle and you've recorded each one of them in your book. I'm here to tell you this morning, God sees your pain. He sees your heartache. He sees your tears. He collects it like they're precious to him, like they're intimately connected to them. He's involved with them. He collects them. He sees it. He's for you. He's not against you. He's not abandoning you. In the middle of it, he sees your heart. Hey, did you know? Job, 40, Job has 42 chapters. 42 chapters of heartache. 42 chapters of back and forth. 42 chapters of pain. 42 chapters of wrestling with questions. And in those 42 chapters, I looked it up this week, there's 1,070 verses, 1070. But the second to last verse, 1,069, has two words in it. These two words give my heart so much hope. These two words, after the 32 chapters of 1,068 verses, it get one to 1,069. After all the pain, after all the heartache, after all the struggle, it says these words. It says, after this, comma. I'm here to tell you this morning, there is an after this for every situation in this room. I know you can't see it. I know it looks like everything consequentially in your life looks like there is no after this. But I'm going to tell you, in Christ, there is an after this. After the betrayal, after the difficult season, after the pain that's unwarranted and unwelcome, there is a moment, yeah, you're going to walk through grief, but you're going to make it. I know it hurts, but there's an after this. I know it's painful. I know you wish it wouldn't have happened, but there is an after this that God is working in and through your pain to redeem it and give you purpose through it. There's an after this for your life. You won't always feel it today. You won't always think how you can think about it today. You won't always be where you're at today, but after this, God's going to redeem your story. I don't know when. I don't know how, but but Job says, I know my Redeemer lives. So I don't know how my story is going to be redeemed, but I know my Redeemer lives. He stands over the earth after this. What did God do? He blessed Job abundantly. Let's move through the heartache. Let's move through the grief. Why? Because there's an after this. Would you close your eyes? Just bow your head with me. I believe that whatever you've lost today, I believe that the Holy Spirit's going to come in this room and like a blanket, going to wrap His arms around you and let you know He's with you, that He sees you in your grief. I know in grief we want answers, but what God offers is comfort. So you've got to be okay with maybe not getting an answer today, but you can get comfort. Psalm 34 and 18 says, The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. I believe in this moment, the Holy Spirit's in this room. He's going to comfort your grieving heart. It's going to begin to heal. For you, they believe through heartbreak, heartbreak of a child, heartbreak of a relationship, heartbreak of a marriage. That like Samson, you won't go looking for relationships outside of God's design because of loneliness but you'll remain faithful to the Lord. That God's going to redeem your pain and sanctify your pain and use it to serve others, touch lives, impact people. Because God, by His love, can rub out all of the shame and condemnation that's associated with a past mistake. And He can offer you grace this morning. Grace undeserved. I want to ask you across this room if you'll stand with me.
I don't want to belabor the point. I don't want to coax or beg. I'm going to ask if you know that the Lord has dealt with your heart this morning in the air of heartbreak or grief and you're looking to respond, not to complicate the process, but to respond to what God's spoken to your heart or dealt with your heart this morning. Would you right now just every eyes open and every head is not bowed. I want you to just come out of your seat. Just come to the altar. Just as a sign of saying, God, you're dealing with my heart this morning. Come on, just come. Just come. No, no sense in complicating the process. Just come. Just come. I want you to get as close as you can here because we're going to ask some leaders to come in behind you in just a few moments and just to pray and minister life and words of comfort. Amen. God bless you. Any more? You want to come? Heartbrokenness. He binds up. He binds up. He's so kind. <laughs> you know, when I, when I see my own kids in heartbreak, you know what my heart does as a father? It draws near, doesn't it? And that's what the Heavenly Father does this morning. He draws near. He's not distant. He draws near. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.